Today on Inland Journal, the coronavirus and keeping jail inmates safe. During the last few weeks, Spokane County judges have been reviewing the cases of people who were incarcerated at the county jail and the Geiger Correctional Center. Many of the inmates held on lower-level charges were released on their own recognizance as a way to reduce their exposure in case someone in the jail tests positive for the coronavirus. Members of the Spokane Smart Justice Coalition, including Carmen Pacheco-Jones, applaud that. Because we knew if we could get them individuals out um, prior to uh, you know, contracting or being exposed to COVID-19, then we had a better chance of um, you know, succeeding in minimizing the impact of the virus. Pacheco Jones is a member of the executive committee for the Smart Justice Coalition. She was one of the signatories to a letter that thanked county authorities for moving quickly to reduce the number of incarcerated people from more than 900 to the 500 range. And then it criticized them for its method of deciding who was released and who stayed. With a recent conversation that I had um, with someone in the judicial system uh, who had done a recent tour of the jail, um, their response was that they were just taken aback that as they walked through, you know, amidst amidst these, um, you know, mass releases, that they were just, you know, startled by who was left behind. And that was African-American, indigenous, and non-English speakers. Signers of the letter say Spokane's criminal justice system has long had a bias against people of color. They say a study by the Burns Institute found that in 2014, for every white adult incarcerated in Spokane County, there were seven blacks, six Native Americans, and almost two Latinos. Curtis Robinson, president of the Spokane chapter of the NAACP, says the county had a chance to address that when it considered whom to release. I mean, we would have preferred that, you know, they do what we've been asking for, which is use a high racial equity lens. When they were letting people out, they would have taken racial data. Um, They would have looked at who they were letting out and probably beforehand sat down and go, "Okay, hey, we're going to take 20 people. What are the racial demographics of these 20 people? Let's make record of that. And then let's make sure that we're dealing with disproportionately versus disproportionately so that we're letting people out according to the proportion that is in the jail. County officials say the result of the culling process did not lead to a big change in the demographics of inmates. In a response to the Smart Justice letter, a letter from all three Spokane County commissioners reads, Based on current jail data, rates of racial disparity remain relatively the same. Curtis Robinson is skeptical about that. He wishes the county would make public the demographic information of who is released so people can see for themselves not a year after the pandemic is over, but current real-time data. Hey, we've let out, you know, or we've done this or we've done that, and here's the data about what we've done. The commissioners in their letter confirm one of the coalition's overarching points. We recognize that criminal justice systems across the country struggle with racially disproportionate outcomes. We recognize that Spokane's criminal justice system is no exception. And for several years, we have endeavored to address relevant concerns and challenges. Maggie Yates, the administrator of the county's Law and Justice Council, says county officials have used money from a multi-million dollar MacArthur grant to study racial inequities in the county system. 
So it has been a, a central component of our work and a central component of our conversations, both internally and with community members. And she says the county has provided training to its employees for several years about people's implicit biases. Obviously, a lot of our efforts have been stalled as we put a pause on more proactive efforts in order to respond to the public health crisis. The Smart Justice Coalition's letter hit a sore spot with Sheriff Ozzy Knezovich. When I take a look at the, the numbers that uh, were used in the uh, in the letter, you know, uh, for every white adult detained, there's 7.1 African Americans detained, and that's very misleading uh, to put out uh, in that way. And uh, it's a it's a typical way that, uh, for some reason, activists have chosen to paint this picture. The problem is. We don't live in a utopian society. Knezovich says the conversation does not advance simply by calling the system racist. He acknowledges there are racial disparities within Spokane's criminal justice system, but says they're part of a bigger problem, and he calls on Smart Justice Spokane to come to the table with solutions. Until society starts dealing with, in my opinion, three major issues, that is education, opportunities, job opportunities, and housing opportunities, we're going to have people at in high-risk categories, uh, people that live in, in the marginal uh, economic brackets, always going to be uh, put at a disadvantage, and we have to find a way to, uh, to fix that. He says that means having honest discussions that people don't seem to want to have. Honest discussion is something Carmen Pacheco-Jones says she welcomes. With all of the upheaval caused by the coronavirus, she says it's time for people to reconsider their positions. Let's continue to acknowledge who we lock up and why we lock them up. Let's begin at the point of contact with law enforcement and how over-policing in areas where um, communities of color uh, live or, you know, stop and frisk or driving while black and all of those things that are just embedded in policies. Let's address that. You can find a link to the Smart Justice Coalition letter on the Inland Journal page at our website, spokanepublicradio.org. Advocates who work with Spokane's domestic violence victims worry the coronavirus is leading to an uptick in violence at home. All that togetherness, says Annie Murphy from the Spokane Regional Domestic Violence Coalition, is not always a good thing. I mean, I think that there's probably some safety concerns. If you're living in you know, close proximity with someone and it's unsafe, it's going to be really hard in this environment for you to get enough space, so to speak, that you can be in a place where you can reach out. Last fall, the coalition released a media campaign to bring awareness to one of Spokane's most difficult social problems. That coincided with Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Six months later, the ads are back. In Spokane County, one in three women endures domestic violence. And one in ten men. One in five children witness it in their homes. In fact, Spokane County has the highest reported rates of domestic violence in the state. It's a secret we may only want to whisper about. But it's time to speak up. It's time to end the violence. Murphy says the timing coincides with April as Sexual Assault Action Month. But there's also concern about the enforced togetherness brought on by the coronavirus restrictions. 
October's campaign featured a documentary that all of Spokane's TV stations aired at the same time one evening. It tells the story of a woman named Nicole. She was beaten while moving out of the home she shared with a partner who abused her for 16 years. He comes running full force around the garage towards me with a club in hand. I couldn't believe my eyes that there he was. He just began hitting me with the club in my head and just kept hitting me. And I just kept screaming. I couldn't do anything else other than scream. I couldn't run anymore. Someone tackled him and took him down. And when they took him down, I could hear him screaming, just just kill me, just kill me now. Just someone just do something. She took my boy. She took my boys away from me. We did have an increase of people either coming forward um, for themselves or concerned, you know, family members or associates saying, hey, I'm worried about this person. I'm seeing this, this, and this, which is exactly what we want, right? We want more bystander awareness. One woman who came forward is Heather Buckley. On September 3rd, my son came into our home and strangled me and my 12-year-old son to the point where the Spokane Police Department called it the worst case of strangulation. Both of them survived. We talked with Heather Buckley last fall. Her eldest son, who is now 19, was arrested and then released back into the neighborhood where they lived. Assault charges were dropped because prosecutors said it wasn't a case of intimate partner violence. She says the incident has taken a toll on her and her other two boys. My children are seeking outside counseling through different therapists because of this case, and we don't feel safe. And we are grateful that we finally got a protection order for a year, but my son is still in my neighborhood, so we don't feel protected. Since then, another prosecutor has picked up the case. Her son has been charged with two counts of assault and assigned a public defender. His trial was due to begin this week, but the Superior Court has canceled all trials until at least late April. Heather Buckley's story illustrates some of the complexities of investigating and trying these cases. Sergeant Jordan Ferguson leads the Spokane Police Department's Domestic Violence Unit. Most victims don't want law enforcement involvement. Most victims just want the abuse to stop. Um, and usually when they end up calling law enforcement or somebody else calls law enforcement, it's a last-ditch effort. Um, on average, they've been assaulted seven times before that first call. Ferguson says the overwhelming majority of cases involve intimate partners. Those are the cases he investigates in conjunction with the YWCA. Others, like Heather Buckley's case, where the violence involves a family member, are handled differently. They will just get put in with general cases with prosecutors um, who are dealing with all their other general cases. And, you know, as much as law enforcement likes to complain that, you know, we're overworked and there's, you know, more than we can do, we still do a lot and we still ship it all to the prosecutors. Well, they haven't been able to increase their numbers um, to have the adequate amount. And then if they do that, well, then you have to increase the public defenders um, to be able to adequately represent the uh, defendants on this and then you have courtrooms that are packed and booked and overwhelmed so you need more courts more judges more commissioners hannah stevens is a victim advocate for lutheran community services she was assigned to guide heather buckley through the legal system though she won't talk about buckley's case for privacy reasons she agreed to talk about working with domestic violence victims in general most of the time um, people i meet out in court find 
comfort in that, knowing that they're not alone. Um, so a lot of it's just validating their experience, validating their concerns, and making sure that they're feeling safe in a space that can be very intimidating. It's a very scary thing already going in front of a judge, but then to have to see your perpetrator sitting across the room from you, that's a very hard experience and, somebody, and something that people shouldn't have to go through alone. Yeah, yeah, everything's great at home. My boyfriend hit me last night. Sergeant Jordan just, Ferguson says there's been no increase in domestic violence cases reported during the time when coronavirus restrictions have been in place. But Annie Murphy believes that's due to victims, both women and men, not feeling safe to report being abused. And she says people are just putting their heads down, focusing on basic survival. People are losing their jobs. They're worried about getting their basic needs met, you know, food. They're trying to find supplies, even just, you know, toilet paper and cleaning supplies. You know, where do I go for childcare? There's just some basic day-to-day -day survival type things that people have really switched their focus. I think that in the coming weeks and probably months, um, we will start to hear about, we'll start to hear stories of, you know, this time, this social isolation time. Murphy hopes that people in trouble will remember this ad campaign and seek help when they need it. You can find more information at endtheviolencespokane.org. You can't hear it in what they say, but it's a secret they want to whisper. Spokane County has the highest reported rates of domestic violence in the state. It's time to speak up. It's time to end the violence. In about three weeks, Washington Governor Jay Inslee's Stay Home, Stay Safe order is scheduled to expire. But what happens after that? No one has the answers yet. But Olympia correspondent Austin Jenkins takes a look at some of the factors that may determine that decision and asks what our new normal may look like. Dr. Scott Lindquist is Washington's chief epidemiologist for communicable diseases. He understands as the weather warms up and the number of new COVID-19 cases levels off, people are going to want to get back to some sense of normalcy. So I know everyone's asking, when are we going to do this? And not yet is the best answer. And Lindquist wants to see a sustained downward trend in new COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, and deaths before he will feel it's safe to gradually ease off some of the current restrictions. He's not alone. Dr. Jeff Duchin of Public Health Seattle in King County says the risk of stepping back too quickly is the virus will come raging back. We want to make sure that when we do start to get back to our usual activities, we do it in a measured way that doesn't lead to the healthcare system becoming overwhelmed. Governor Inslee's current stay-home order expires on May 4th. In a one-on-one -on -one interview with Public Radio, the governor spoke about his desire to shift to what he calls phase two of the state's response to the pandemic. And we are really hopeful that we can get there sooner rather than later. In this second phase, Inslee envisions a sequential relaxing of social distancing orders and allowing some non-essential businesses to reopen. But to make this transition, Inslee says Washington will have to have widespread access to COVID-19 testing. The pace we can do that is actually the defining factor of uh, when we can loosen some of these controls. Robust testing is necessary so that public health officials can spot flare-ups and quickly respond by isolating the person, tracing their contacts, and then quarantining those individuals. Contact tracing is time-consuming work, but technology could make it easier. 
Dr. Lindquist, the state epidemiologist, is intrigued by smartphone apps that could alert people if they've come in close contact with someone who tests positive for COVID-19. I'm looking at tools like this as we release the community mitigation or we loosen it. These are the things that are going to become more important. Even as Washington works to build a robust testing and tracing system, there's already talk about how to restart the economy. It's a conversation House Republican leader J.T. Wilcox, whose family runs Wilcox Farms, is eager to jumpstart. We should look carefully uh, at every job category and find out what we can do to let people get back to work in a way that provides a lot less risk. Speaker of the House Lori Jenkins, who works in public health, also sees opportunities to put people back to work. But Jenkins says the worst mistake would be to back off too quickly. Our economy can withstand whatever it needs to withstand, I believe, in order to save lives. That's not to say that there isn't a balance of those things. At Washington's Department of Commerce, Director Lisa Brown of Spokane has been tasked with leading the state's economic recovery. She anticipates the economy will reopen industry by industry and region by region. We're looking at a restart of our economy, but it will be a new normal with with new kinds of guidelines and safety standards in place. For instance, some employees might have their temperatures taken as they arrive to work, and there might be new social distancing requirements in the workplace. For Inslee, the looming question is when that long road to recovery can begin. Well, I am hopeful after May 4th there are some things that we could return to. That is not a guarantee. I don't know what extent those are. He adds the public has an important role to play by continuing to follow his social distancing orders over the coming weeks. I'm Austin Jenkins in Olympia. The new normal. We're hearing that phrase more and more as we contemplate what life will be like after the initial phase of the coronavirus ends. For University of Washington first-year medical student Grayson Baden, the old normal placed her in Spokane, where she was learning with her peers on the Gonzaga campus. Now we see each other almost every day over Zoom. With physical distancing, she's back home in Arlington, living with her folks. Her fellow students are back home as well. And uh, it's just been really um, touching to see how our, our faculty, our instructors, our administrators have adapted and are, on one hand, you know, the frontline workers in this really difficult and uncertain time, dedicated uh, to uh, teaching the next generation. And so it's been really uh, inspiring. And um, I know our class is very impressed with how they've done. Baden is in the foundations phase. That's what the UW calls the first year and a half of medical school. For now, she communicates with her instructors and mentors via email and Zoom. It's interesting to, you know, see all of my classmates that I'm used to seeing in person, their little squares on the screen. And uh, we have uh, cameras for the instructors and cameras for their whiteboards. And so they're really doing their best to still give that classroom feel and still being very open to questions and the interaction It's just all digital. And for now, she realizes it has to be enough. For the medical students in the latter half of their education, it's a time when they would normally be following doctors on rotations and learning how to examine patients. Dr. Janelle Clauser is one of the University of Washington's clinical instructors in Spokane. She teaches students about the seeing patients part of the job. So it's a combination of teaching how to interview patients, how to talk to patients, Um, how to examine patients, and then also a a bit about 
you know, developing their professional identity as doctors. Part of that teaching involves face-to-face interaction with people. Some of that is normally done in classrooms, some in hospitals. They actually get to interview real patients in the hospital. Um, Patients who have been consented and have given permission to be interviewed and have a physical exam done on them. But that's not allowed right now. Clouser says when the governor's stay-home order was issued, faculty members quickly got together to figure out how to adapt, what could be done by Zoom, and what had to be postponed. So obviously, physical exam teaching is kind of the hardest. We minim- we're trying to minimize physical exam teaching just for now. Um, one example of that is um, the musculoskeletal exam is, is, is usually taught in the spring, um, so this term. But because it's such a hands-on, you know, all those physical exam maneuvers that you have to do for the musculoskeletal exam are just so helpful to be done in person. We moved that workshop into the fall and have brought in other workshops that focus more on communication skills. Dr. Bill Sayers is the assistant dean for foundations in Spokane. He says with the current situation, it's hard for medical students to get the full experience of learning about the human body. You lose a kind of a perspective in a 2D anatomy course when you you lose the sense of relationships between organs. I mean, that, some people think of anatomy as just a you know, memorize the nerves and the veins and the arteries and muscles and bones, et cetera. Uh, But really, it's more about relationships between structures. And that's very hard to teach in the uh, on an online setting. Nonetheless, that's how the UW faculty decided to move ahead all online for now. That is involved an enormous amount of work for everybody, students, faculty and administration in order to make this successful. And it's an ongoing task, too. I think for the most part, I mean, if there's our students did well on their last exam. So if that's a a a test of how things are going, that's so far so good. (laughs) That's Dr. Bill Sayers from the University of Washington School of Medicine in Spokane. That's it for today's Inland Journal. You can hear our podcast anytime at SpokanePublicRadio.org, at Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and NPR One. I'm Doug Nadvornik. Thanks for listening.